So I was hoping not to have to put this on, right? We're talking our Titanic analogy. We get some good Biogen news. And then Bloomberg comes out with this Apple news. I mean, I can't wait for Q3 earnings season to be over, and it just hasn't even started yet. Mitch, roll that intro. We got to figure all this stuff out quickly. Coming to you live from downtown Detroit, this is Benzinga's Pre-Market Prep with your host, Joel Conan. This is a volatile puppy here, isn't it? And Dennis Dick. I'm bidding a penny. I'd buy that stock for a penny. With everything you need to start your trading day. look at the futures and then we'll bring the boys in uh we're down we're down 18 handles uh 3643 30 handles off the low whatever that means uh and 30 handles off the high so a little bit of a rally going the buck won't stop i think this is like the eighth or ninth day in a row up up 0.533 uh tlt oh that's a nice bounce uh 36 cents at 10131 uh gold and Silver, they're both in the red, down 240 and at 1634. Silver, lower 18 handle at 1812. Forgot about crude. Uh, crude has that double bottom in there that we've been keying off at 76.30. That's up 41 cents at uh, 78.91. Bitcoin and Ethereum in the red, uh, just marginally. Uh, let's bring on a triple D and bitch. And uh, and uh, first, triple D is going to expose on his Titanic theory. And uh, Mitch, Mitch has always his good technical analysis to uh, to add to the show. Oh, you want me to start with the Titanic? I don't know if I want to start there or not. Last night, so last night, I'm positioned. I'm actually short cues, pretty heavy. I'm like, I'm positioned for a down day here. And then the Biogen news <laughs> hits. And I'm like, holy crap, that could prop the whole market up. And then they started ripping stocks. This hit, it dropped around. I think it was around 7.30 it dropped. And then they just started going and going and going. And I'm like, man, I got to reposition myself here. So I started covering some of my cues short. Of course, you know, after 8 o'clock, everything changes. One from one thing. From one, we were up with the futures. Biogen's going to look higher. It was still in the halt. Lily was higher. Sam was higher. We're going to get into the, those individual stories. And then the ball drop. Bloomberg. Apple. Production. Cutting production. Because there's soft demand. And boom, the futures just start tanking on that. I was like, holy crap, that just changed everything. You didn't so anyways, hear the, the background the music when that news bucks. hit? What's that? I, I heard it hit, that background music. We're going down, Rose. This is it. We're going down, Rose. Rose, just are give we... me a little room. Let me get on that. But no, no. <laughs> are we going to get in trouble for that one, Mitch, or no? Oh, yeah. We get fine for that, you for know. sure. I take it. I take it. Yeah, we get fine for that. But, uh, okay, bringing it back, I mean, to the Titanic analogy, sitting here bobbing up and down. We've been bobbing up and down last few days. Kind of breached the support a little bit, but Bob and kind of hold it. Biogen lifts us a little bit last night, trying to lift the futures up a little bit. And then all of a sudden, boom, now you just took, took out the full engine. Like you may have been yeah. like sitting there. Maybe the engine was still sputtering a bit. Now the engine just got boom. 
So I don't know. That's not good news. Well, but will we get a seventh straight We're still down? on support. We're still there. We're holding it, Joel. We're kind of trying to hold it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's kind of exactly what you said. It was like, you know, but if you thought that there was something that would be like the, the big down day, like that, like, pow, like we're going down. You would ask me, I would have said, ah, you know, a, a warning from Apple. And, uh, yeah. and Mitch and I were just talking yeah. on the afternoon show about the relative strength in Apple and Tesla. And if there was those, if those two stocks went down, then we're really going to crack. And here you are, here you have one of them. Let's go through the news because it's, it's, Give us it's, the Apple it's, news. it's kind of, it's kind Start of, right with Apple. Forget Biogen. It's not going to move the overall market. Forget the treasuries. Apple. It's all about Apple today. Let's go to Apple. And this news is coming from Bloomberg. I just want to go ahead and state that before I get into it. It didn't come directly from Apple. Now, Apple is backing. This is what they reported. Apple is backing off plans to increase productions of its new iPhone this year after anticipated surge in demand failed to materialize. The company told suppliers to curtail efforts to increase assemblies from the flagship's iPhone 14, as many as 6 million units in the second half this year. Apple had aimed to produce 90 million headsets uh, for the period, nearly the same number as a year ago. And I this... What they're seeing is that they're even telling their suppliers to not bring uh, kind of the efforts to get their flagship iPhone as as many as six million. Um, and that's just for the second half of this year. Ninety million is going to be definitely a hard reach if they're going to be struggling just already in this first half of the year. Two things. One, this is not from Apple. This is reported from Bloomberg from sources say. Bloomberg is an excellent source. They usually are right. They usually are connected. It's probably right. But you just got to take it with, you know, the grain of salt there that, hey, this did not come directly from Apple. This came from Bloomberg. So they're hitting it. They're hitting the stock first and asking questions later here. It's what I've been concerned about. We know I hedged my long-term Apple position a little bit too early back in August. Um, Obviously, the stock continued to climb another 10 or 12 points after I hedged it, which I was like, wow, I can't believe it. Um, now, you know, you start taking out support, you have big support here around the 150 area, 146. It looks like it's going to take that out today. There's not a heck of a lot in here. Um, if this report is indeed true, if Apple confirms, you know, that, hey, uh, you know, production, it's a little bit of soft demand here, not good for the overall market. So, but we don't have confirmation from the company. We haven't had any comments. I don't believe from the company. So we do have to still acknowledge that this is from Bloomberg and not from Apple. With that being said, this is a huge hit to the overall market. I mean, I really believe we would have had a nice update off the Biogen news today, which mm-hmm. we'll get to in a second. But with this Apple news, as soon as that hit the tape, futures, you know, NASDAQ futures are straight down. I'm like, there's no doubter. I mean, this is not good news. Apple down five is never going to be good for the overall market. What's the biggest component in the S&P? So, Joel, technically speaking... Let's talk yeah. Apple and let's talk well, the first, S&P. Yeah, yeah. Well, first, first, I'll, I'll, I just want to say, and and we were reviewing this um, on the pre pre market show. Uh, so Apple not too long ago said that they were ramping up production in anticipation of bigger orders, right? So if if I'm looking at things, so the production was here. Okay, they said they were going to go to here. Right. But now they're coming back to here. 
So, yeah, maybe it's a reduction of the increase that they were going to have. But to me, this says it's coming back to equilibrium. So, and it's not even coming back for the company. Now, if they wouldn't have said we're anticipating higher demand and you didn't have that higher anticipation, then aren't we right back where we started from? Yeah. I mean, that's silver lining market, Joel. I'm trying. I'm trying. I mean, I'm, I'm trying just, to find a reason to not be bearish. I, I'm just saying, uh, this is the new, like, you could, you know, you texted me. We went back and forth last night. I'm looking at it. I'm looking at it. And I'm like, and that was the first thing that hit my mind. So, you know, it could just be hogwash and, and Bloomberg's got it right and the Apple's going down and the biggest component in the S&P is crashing and burning as we speak. And that, you know, that's a big thing. That was one of the, th- you know, one of the things that we've been talking about. But technically speaking, you had your boys stepping up at 149, 150. So I don't think you could be, you know, if you just want to wait and say, okay, this is, this is BS, then it gets back above 150, holds 150. I would say, okay, yeah, this is BS. Right now, pre-market support coming in. I mean, steady buyer there at 45 and a half. I mean, they're there. They're, they're not paying 46 or 46 and a quarter. But really, maybe anything under 146, they're just kind of scooping it up. Um, does that coincide with anything on the dailies? No, not really on the Ain't dailies. Much in there, Joel. Not much in there. I, no. I'd say if you get a not if much. someone just panics. And just says, you know, this is horrible news. This is going down. I think you could see 143 and a quarter today and then 142.12. So that's, I, uh, I just yep. think, and I wouldn't have hedged my long-term position if I didn't think Apple was going down below. I've said before, I think Apple's eventually got a date at 120. I think it's too expensive. Multiple, that's a June low. The whole, yeah, the June, well, below the June low, I was even giving it to. It was a big level before June if you go back into 2020, oh, yeah. 120 was like the April, like 2020. Oh, yeah, it's kind of where right. stock got down to in the COVID bottom. I see it. Yeah, it's kind of where my target has been. Um, 22. I, mean, I have no position on right now besides, obviously, I'm long the stock, but hedged through options, but call parity. Um, so I'm net market. I'm net neutral Apple right now. I've been long Apple in my long-term portfolio for the better part of a decade. So sometimes a little uncomfortable to not be long Apple, but I am long some cues. But with that being said, I just it's the whole run in Apple. We've given this like the whole move in Apple has been multiple expansion. When we look at where this stock has gone the last three or four years, it hasn't gone up because they've just been growing earnings like crazy. It's gone up because of multiple expansion. It used to trade 12 times earnings. Now it trades 25 times earnings. So the big move has been multiple expansion. We're in a market that is into multiple contraction. Something just doesn't add up, and they've been forgiving of Apple for a long time. If Apple indeed warns, if they say something, and we're not going to get their earnings here for about three and a half weeks yet, but if they go into this earnings season and they warn, Katie bar the door, they could knock 10% off the stock in a hurry. So I don't know if that's going to happen, but Bloomberg's saying it might happen. Obviously, we know their sources. So they're hitting it first and asking questions later. Stock is not cheap. No. Uh, yeah, you're right. Uh, the um, the June, though, uh, is quite a bit of that. I shouldn't have, I said, should have said 132 um, instead of, no, June, though, 129.04. I knew it was in the 20s, so that could be a longer-term target on it. Um, on a rally, man, the bottom of yesterday's, I don't see them this just, you know, the way it's looking right now and the start's looking pretty heavy. I'd say you got to, let's say good morning to Cameron. Cameron, how you doing? Oh, the old mute. She's okay. 
She's, she's all over she's the just, stuff. You know, mute. No worries. <laughs> well, there it is. Two, two years of this and still can't learn how to unmute. Yourself. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, seven years and eight years here, and uh, we still do the same trick. So my first question to you, um, have you been listening to pre-market prep show a lot? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Good answer. The good answer. <laughs> because uh, we've been using a water analogy. Uh, Dennis came up with it oh, when gosh. I was gone and just talking about the market just being a Titanic, you know, just kind of like weaving and not going down, not sinking, but just kind of weaving and bobbing. So that leads me into what your deck is called. And yours is a little bit, a little bit uh, more colorful, or it could be flush check. <laughs> yeah. Oh, flush check! How you like that one, Dennis? Flush there check. There you go. Let's see. I'm excited. Yeah. Okay. So Mitch, you know, start out. Mitch is gonna is gonna roll through this and uh, tell us what you got on your mind. Well, if we continue that that Titanic analogy, it's it's if you look at the percentage of allocations still to equities in individual investor accounts, it's like they're saying, I'll never let go, Jack. I'll never let go. <laughs> because they're still sitting at 65%. Oh, and gosh. usually during major market meltdowns, they go down to 40, 45%. That's the wall of worry that gets built. That's why you get good returns on the other side of corrections. You haven't seen people let go of a lot of their equity longs so okay and i see this you know from my twitter account i see this you know in our chat saying everybody's bearish out there we got to go up because everybody's bearish but in the data you're saying that's not the case yeah look there there's reason to think that we're there that we're short-term oversold and i i would say that let's go back to the beginning of this year when sentiment was already very bearish and I think we spoke at the beginning of this year, looking at bull bear indicators and talking about how that probably wasn't going to hold true this year, that being seeing a lot of bears in the market didn't necessarily mean that everybody was positioned that way. So it was a watch what they do, not what they say kind of moment. And so, yes, there is a lot of bearish sentiment, but if and there is bearish positioning, you can see it in put call ratios, you can see it in institutional equity positioning as well. But we really haven't gotten to the point yet where we have seen a complete blowing out of individual equity positioning. And what's interesting is it's that it's those individual equity holders that tend to be more predictive of forward returns, meaning it's when households, it's when individual investors give up on their equities, that that's when you start to see forward returns improve. And that's what typically coincides with market bottoms. I think the other important thing to know is that bottoms in sentiment and even bottoms in positioning do not always coincide with the bottoms in price when you are in a major bear market. So we go back to the great financial crisis. We had the low in the allocation to equities from an institutional basis an entire six months before the market actually made a low and another 30% lower. So I think we, need, we should be careful about ascribing too much timing to some of these measures. I think the conclusion of all of this, though, when we do the flush check is that we've made a lot of progress in letting a lot of air out of this market, meaning that maybe we're, we're closer to the end than we were to the beginning. But still, we've been in this for nine months. So I think it's a question of how much further we go. Is this a market that, you know, is going to bounce back? I mean, we've had Craig Johnson on the show, some analysts saying, you know, 
maybe not this year, but next year we're making new all-time highs again. Is this the kind of market that eventually, you know, just goes back to business as usual? Or are we in a different market environment here now where we don't have an accommodating Fed? We don't have, you know, a printing press, unless you're in, in England, apparently. But we don't have this printing press that's just coming, you know, to save the day. What, what are your thoughts here? Is there a path to get back to all-time highs? I think we are in a brave new world, meaning that without the stimulus of the Fed, without the Fed's willingness to not only just pause tightening, but flip to aggressive accommodation, without that, it's really hard to justify valuations going back to where they were in 2020 and 2021. So then what that leaves is in order to get to new all-time highs without this major tailwind from valuation expansion to above 18, 19 times, really the only way that you can justify going above 19 times is if the Fed is stimulating aggressively. So without that, that means what you have to do is you have to grow into your multiple, meaning that you have to have multiple years of earnings growth to kind of get into higher valuations or higher overall prices for the market because you're not going to have that tailwind from valuations like we have had since you know every time that we've come out of a major market low in the past cycle. But again, every one of those was really caused and, and, and propelled by a Fed that was being ultra, ultra easy and accommodative. You recall back in 2018, 2018 at the market low in December, we had a real yield that was just above 1%. Over the course of the next 18 months, real yields went to negative 1%. That's why tech outperformed. That's why the NASDAQ outperformed. It was not because of earnings. That's why Apple outperformed. It's not because of earnings. It's because of huge multiple expansion that has the tailwind of monetary policy behind it. So unless you think we go to a world where the Fed says we are okay with highly stimulative negative real rates, then you cannot count on multiple expansion to be your driver of returns. It has to come from earnings. Joel's on mute. Joel, Joel, look, see, Cameron, it's, it's not it's Cameron's fault. Joel doesn't want to show. So, Joel, Joel, you know, we put the over-under at, you know, 0.5 usually, or maybe it's even 1.5, but, yeah, on, on his You can tell show, Dennis is feeling Go, better. Joel. I okay. never do the mute thing. Oh, yeah. Okay. So, we got the bad CPI numbers, right? And that, that kind of, you know, that kind of threw things off. So I, I never thought that like, oh, the end of 22, 23, you know, we're going to stop going up. We're going to pause. We're going to go down. I, where are we at now with the Fed pivot? I mean, are we looking like end of 23, early 24? I mean, they got their foot on the accelerator and, you know, where the new data, where to put you as far as the Fed pivot? So I think our, our first point is to acknowledge really this shift in tone by the Fed over the past few months. Going back in 2020, 2021, the Fed's view on inflation was that it's not our fault. We didn't cause this. This is all transitory. This is all supply chain related. This is caused by the pandemic and the, the resulting impacts of lockdowns. But what's happened, and it really was driven home at Jackson Hole in that very short eight-minute speech, is the Fed actually took responsibility for inflation. And that's important because as they take responsibility for inflation, that signals their reaction function to incoming data. 
So when we think about how they will react to market volatility like we're seeing today, and you haven't heard a lot of commentary from Fed speakers speak about that yet. We did hear Yellen yesterday saying, nothing to see here, no problem, everything's fine. Um, not Obviously, not everything's fine if you look at the UK market this morning. Uh, but what the question is, as we see inflation start to moderate, and it will moderate. Goods prices have decelerated from being up nearly 20% to start this year to running up only about 8% this year or, or the last month. The end result is that we likely go into goods deflation next year. But the problem that the Fed has is that it's not about goods prices and supply chains anymore. It's really solely about the labor market. And the labor market is a very lagging indicator. It moves slowly. Companies are very, very slow to fire workers because they've had so much trouble over the past couple of years hiring them. But the end result is that the inflation that we have today is not caused by pandemic related factors of, of used car prices. So focusing on that is actually the wrong thing to do. Focusing on services inflation, which is driven by, by labor markets and tight labor markets and wages, is what the Fed is focusing on now. And what the Fed is afraid of is that if they respond to market volatility and cut rates, if they respond to inflation kind of moderating from a top line perspective because of goods prices, because of energy prices moderating, they fear that they will cement the higher inflation we're seeing in the labor market within services prices. And the challenge that those are is that those feed into what's called sticky inflation. Sticky inflation is running at 6.1% today. That's the highest in 40 years. Sticky inflation is considered to be inflation that is slower moving. So when it goes high, it stays high. It's less volatile. But there's one really very, very key important definitional point in sticky inflation. If you go on FRED, St. Louis Fed uh, data, the way that they define it is sticky inflation in, uh, includes more about inflation expectations in the in the inflation components because if you think for example if I'm a, a company that's hiring workers or raising wages I'm only going to raise wages if I think I can pass those prices on in the future so there's an embedded inflation expectations component to sticky CPI. So you have to watch that closely. We do not get a Fed pivot until we see significant moderation in that sticky CPI, and that takes time. All right. You got a lot of great stats here on trying to find a bottom, trying to pick a bottom, oversold not only on a daily but on a weekly basis, also moving in on some important moving averages. Everyone wants to pick the bottom. You got a lot of, you put a lot of great information out in front of us there. What, give us your top two or three things that you're looking to say, okay, it's time to, it's okay to dip your toe back in the water. So first, the, we're, we're seeing oversold indicators on the dailies, but on the medium terms and the weeklies, whether we're looking at the RSI comparing daily oversold to weekly, not quite oversold, or looking at breadth measures like looking at the percentage of names under their 50-day moving average, 
those looking oversold, but if you look at the names under their 200 day, we're not quite at that breadth flush yet. So that would argue that maybe you can get a little bit of a breather bounce, but this is not consistent yet with that big, huge, ultimate generational low like we typically see in, in major bottoms. The other point to that is that those measures can actually persist. So we have to be very careful in saying that once they hit those extremes, you ring the bell and say that the, that everything is over, it likely means that we are closer to the end than we are to the beginning. But it doesn't mean that you V-shape from there because V-shape really is required of some kind of Fed pivot, some kind of policy pivot, we think, um, in order to sustain that. So then how do we think about allocating portfolios in today's world? I think that the, the, the challenge we have is that now is when fear starts to set in. After you had a rip-roaring rally coming out of the June lows and everybody thinking all clear, everything's fine, we can go back to normal and the worst is behind us. When we retest like we have and we're now making new lows, that's when you start to see despair start to creep in. And when despair creeps in, that's when you start to make mistakes. That's when we start getting the calls of should I sell everything because the world is ending. And given the fact that we're now down you know, almost 30% over this correction or 25, 25%. And if, as we continue, we think the 200 week moving average around 350, 350, 3550 is important um, as a place to hold. Um, not necessarily that it will uh, for a few reasons, but, but as we get towards those levels, we want people to start thinking in that strategic lookout one, two, three years plus versus the tactical, I'm trying to buy the ultimate low in this market. And so I think for those longer investors, you can start having these conversations about dollar cost averaging in, but in a very, very risk controlled way, because the problem is, as we're seeing in the UK, as we're starting to see within the treasury market, in the, in the dollar market, we are at risk of having some kind of liquidity shock. And liquidity shocks cause you to overshoot trends. And liquidity shocks usually come with spikes and fear emotion. And so we want to be prepared to be on the other side of that fear, to be opportunistic when that happens. Uh, but we, we do think that there is risk that we definitely undershoot that level, that 3550 level on the S&P from the 200 cool. moving average. All right, moving on. I love the name of your next section here. I'm not okay. I promise. Yeah, feeling a little emo. Okay, a little emo. <laughs> <laughs> so sentiment and positioning check. I mean, you know, it, it's kind of hard. Like we we kind of feel like people are still being super bullish, and you get the sentiment out there. Tell us about future positioning remains very short, and just what you use to gauge sentiment. Yeah, it, it's been short for quite some time. It's not a great timing tool. Oftentimes it flips short after a low, but now that that uh, condition has been violated now that we've made new lows, uh, meaning that we got to that peak short positioning back in June. So a lot of people said, oh, this must be it uh, because we're because we're so short. That really only tells one part of the story. We think the real thing that's been the stickiest here has been the individual investor allocation to equities. And until we see them throw in the towel, until we see FINRA margin loan balances, which are down about 17% now over the last six months, 
months until we see those really go down 20, 30 percent like we have in other major lows. We, we, we wouldn't really say that positioning has been truly flushed. Now, of course, institutional basis, it is very short. And we do see net net long positioning from a hedge fund perspective be, be very, very light. And so that can set us up for some face ripping rallies. That is consistent with every bear market where you just get positioning that moves too far, too fast to the short side, sentiment too far, too fast to the, to the downside. And the end result is you get a relief rally. But then what really drives the trend of the bear market is the fundamentals. The thing that drives the bear market is going to be the path of liquidity, which drives valuations. It's going to be the path of growth, which drives earnings. And so I think what we have to do is, is have a view on that medium term trend, which we think still is down, but respect the fact when we get to these extremes. And given these technical measures, we might be getting close to one of those extremes. So if we see that rally, be careful not to ascribe too much narrative to it to think that the worst is over if we've seen no change in liquidity and if we've seen no change in growth. We're on the line with Cameron Dawson. She's a chief investment officer at New Edge Wealth. Uh, let's just go to, you know, the causes of inflation. You talked about this um, at the top of uh, at the top of the interview, you know, passing the buck, you know, from the supply chain issues uh, that we've had coming out of the pandemic uh, to services and labor, which, are, you know, once you get that raise, you know, you're not giving it back. And if you got a higher, you know, higher home costs, you're going to go ask for another raise. Uh, talk about the, the you know, the, the type of inflation, the sticky type of inflation. Yeah, this is so very important because you know the strong labor market was something that the Fed has been celebrating for years and is now their greatest headache. The fact that even as we have seen these big high profile announcements of layoffs over the past few months, you've actually seen initial jobless claims over the last month trend lower. They're now back to June lows and all measures of the labor market still remain very tight, whether it's the number of job openings per unemployed worker being still near two. So two job openings per available worker. And or if you look at things like the NFIB, which is the, the small business survey asking about job openings being hard to fill, that's remaining near highs. It's hovering. So yes, we might be seeing signs that labor is becoming a little bit more abundant. You do see that the, the uh, uh, participation rate is going up, but we're starting from such a tight level. And the end result is that tight labor market has resulted, ultra tight labor market has resulted in higher wages, running at up about 6.7%. Higher wages is feeding into higher services prices, running at about 6.8% um, from the CPI components of services. That's what drives sticky inflation. That's why the Fed is staying tight. That's why the Fed is focusing on labor market statistics to tell them when they've gone too far. But the big catch here is that labor market is lagging. And so when they've gone too far, they're relying on a very lagging indicator to tell them that they've gone too far. Isn't, and I've made this argument on the show the last couple of weeks here. I, my concern is that the Fed actually has gone too far. They're using a lot of lagging indicators in their overall all analysis. We know, you know, inflation, you know, even CPI lags to a certain extent. But I mean, I, you know, you think about just logically speaking, and I've talked about this on the show a lot too. Some of our listeners would have heard this. But, you know, when you start raising rates, 
it doesn't immediately just destroy demand. It doesn't destroy tomorrow because, you know, you start raising rates. Okay, well, people, you know, all of a sudden, you know, looking, okay, well, I'm a little tighter for cash. Maybe I'm not going to go out for the fancy dinner. Maybe I'm not going to go buy that new toy, you know, but I've got some credit card debt. Let's rack that up first. So they bring up the credit card debt. The credit card debt starts going up, which we've seen, you know, has obviously increased substantially. Once you've maxed out your credit card debts, then you're going to start, you know, maybe not buying those, you know, discretionary items. Eventually, you get to a point where you just don't have, you know, the kind of, you know, discretionary income to really. And then that starts to kill demand. That's kind of the whole flow through of it all. So my question is, has the Fed already gone far enough with these rate increases that we just haven't seen, you know, the work of the Fed in the economy yet, but it's coming? Yeah, it's coming because... I think it's also not just the end destination, but it's how long you stay there that really has yeah. an impact. So think about if you're a small business that has a business loan that's tied to LIBOR or SOFR. Last year, 12-month LIBOR was 0.2%, and you paid some spread on that. Today, 12-month LIBOR is 4.7%. So you've seen your borrowing costs absolutely go through the roof. Now that's okay if it only lasts a couple months. If if the Fed pivots and goes back and we see borrowing costs go back to where they were. But you were not planning for borrowing costs at 4.7%. So let's think about this from a capital allocation perspective. What's been the most popular area for new for new money over the past few years in the reach for yield? Private credit. And everybody goes, "Well, it's floating rate is fantastic." Well, it's floating rate, which is fantastic for, for the lenders, but for the borrowers, you could start seeing credit issues, a lot of real estate based on floating rate, venture credit, venture equity. There's a lot of areas where if you do not work with really good underwriters who know these businesses well, you could have major risks. And I think if we think about where there could be systemic risks from this action by the Fed, it's in those areas that have really been built on the back of ultra loose policy for years and years, never thinking you'd get to 4.7% on 12 month LIBOR. And now you're in this shock where you have your funding costs go through the roof and you should see what, what likely happens is a significant downshift in activity because you have a lot less flexibility to invest in your business, expand, hire people, all of those things that were all built on the back of ultra cheap money. All right. So we're, uh, we're moving on here. I, thanks for we're keeping you on for a long time. I really appreciate it, but just, uh, just one more thing to uh, wrap up the interview. And I, I love the, uh, uh, you know, the, um, the way you approach things. But one thing that's really been plaguing the market um, has been the dollar. Mm -hmm. And you say, don't stop me now. Could uh, quickly just give us the impact and aftermath of the strong U.S. dollar? Yeah, this is so, so important, which is that we are seeing the dollar go go parabolic right now. And and Bob Farrell has a has a quote in his in his four in his 10 top rules, which is that, you know, once things start to go in extreme uptrends or downtrends, they can continue a lot longer than you think. So this parabolic move can go a lot faster than we think and higher than we think. However, what comes on the other side is usually not just a benign sideways consolidation. You have a sharp correction to the other side. And that's what we learn from past big dollar cycles. And what typically happens is that something breaks when the dollar goes, goes parabolic, when it tightens so much. Even back in 2014, we had the, the bursting of the oil bubble and the industrial recession 
that was the result of a very strong dollar. Something will break this time. Things are breaking in the UK. Things are breaking in Southeast Asian currencies. We are going to have issues because of this, this dollar period. But what comes on the other side is really interesting is that usually you see a, a, a steep dollar bear market. And what happens when you have steep dollar bear markets is that non-US assets have typically had, it's the only time that they have a period of outperformance, which is why we've been having this whites of the eyes kind of mentality to, to non-US trades, meaning that until we see the dollar break in a meaningful way, we do not want to go overweight international and emerging markets. But but as we all look and say the U.S. is the best house in a bad block, we have to start thinking the next step ahead, what comes on the other side of, of, this, of this dollar rally. So in, in the near term, we stick domestic because that's where we have the least risk of having a major currency crisis like you're seeing in, in EM and international. We still have really weak trends um, within international, no signs of it turning around. But when you look back in history, you look at that period from 2000 to 2007, you go back to the period from 1985 to 1990, the only times that non-US assets actually had major outperformance was in major dollar bears. So be prepared on the side of a major dollar bull as we're in now, and it can continue and it will, it, it, it likely goes on given the posturing of global central banks, but on the other side, be prepared for what happens and, and it typically is a major shift in money flows, asset flows uh, around the world. All right. Last part. Sugar, we're going down. Valuation EP estimates still at the risk of cuts. We have gone through the June low. We're, we're trying. We're trying to get back above it here. Uh, tell us what you need to see technically here and then what would be your next target on the downside? Yeah, so we, we still think that valuations need to go lower and EPS estimates have to go lower, uh, that they're still sitting at 243 for for 2023, if we break that down into looking at some of the cyclical sectors, you have consumer discretionary still having 30% growth marked down for next year. A lot of that is Tesla, but 30% given the fact that the Fed's saying it wants to see higher unemployment, which means higher, lower consumption, um, is just not is just not possible. Look at something like industrials still having 17% growth marked down for next year. Industrials with FedEx, giving that kind of pre-announcement we had two, two weeks ago and the PMI barely in expansion, not possible. So if the number goes to down 10%, which would be kind of a run-of-the-mill recession, very mild recession from an earnings standpoint, you're looking at valuations on today's levels that are trading at about 18 and a half times. That's too expensive given the Fed posturing and Fed tightening. So what that implies is that we could see if that number really is about $200 a share for next year, which you know some will argue is still very optimistic. You know, you put a 16 times multiple on that, and that gets you to what could be kind of that peak kind of flush downside um, that we get from this market. So you know, I think that that that's where we where we have to appreciate these things drive the medium term trend valuations, which are driven by liquidity and earnings, which are driven by growth. That's the medium term trend. That's essentially your 200 day moving average. But we know that we can oscillate around that trend because of positioning, because of sentiment. And so we have to be disciplined and not read into being too oversold to the downside, thinking the world is ending immediately or too overbought to the upside, thinking that everything's all clear. Remember that medium term trend, because that will really be the key uh, 
place for us to determine where we think we could actually make a sustainable bottom. And for now, we don't see it yet. All right, Cameron Dawson, Chief Investment Officer at New Edge Wealth, giving us an extended look at the markets. We really appreciate your time today, and uh, we'll we'll be tracking you down soon. Have a great day, and thanks again. Thank you, guys.